Morning. Morning. Let's see him. Let's see him. Congratulations. You mean this boy right here? Yeah, I mean, have you put on a little weight? I mean, I, you know, you used to be in such good shape. It's the price of, uh, you know, fatherhood. Congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> Congrats on the baby, Mike. He's so beautiful. Yeah, thank you. He's healthy and eight pounds. And wow. First, his first elder talk. First of many, I'm sure. Is that Michael Chen, sir? How you doing, Mike? Congratulations on the new baby. U.S. Army Captain Michael Chen here in the top right. Thank you, sir, for your service. Thank you, Mike. How are you and Gina? Piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't expect less. <laughs> Would she say the same thing? I'm just curious. Yeah, well, she's... Uh, going to do something a, a couple hours from now about the surrogate process with our surrogate and the whole you know kind of coming full circle on the whole process so it's been great got a, a lot of great information <clears throat> and you know the the impetus of alder talk live started when when COVID just started i would get questions about what do we do how do we deal with this what are we what's going to happen just kind of all the above and instead of answering them piecemeal, we started this process. This then kind of graduated to not just law, but how to deal with the stress of things. Then it kind of, as you guys know, I'm kind of a, a little bit uh, yogi, you know, hippie-ish, you know, whatever, life coach, um, and unapolo unapologetically so. And so it turned into law and life. And now, since we have a community, I wanna open it up more to things that I know are relevant to me. And I know that if they're relevant to me, they're relevant to all of you. And so, so today is gonna to be a part of it. I got some other great stuff to talk about law, but we wanna start with money. And I gotta tell you that, um, Eric uh, Gomez, who's going to talk about some of the, the basics, he's going to open it up to questions, but I asked him to come on to talk about starting kind of the year, what are the types of things that we should be looking at from gifts that we can give to our kids tax-free to tax planning to some of the things that we can start looking at in, and uh, documenting that will help us with our tax planning defined benefit plans for basically deferred compensation for sole practitioners. And what are some of those things that we can do? You know, I, as a corporation now with multiple uh, employees, I have to do certain types of defined benefit plans, but if it was just me, I did a SEP IRA and I was actually to put, able to put away a significant amount of, of percentage of my income to that. So we're gonna talk about that. In, we got one more minute. Um, this is Elias Zapanta Alder. He uh, was born on the fourth, seven pounds, 14 ounces, uh, is eating like a horse. And his, his uh, grandma and grandpa are on here this morning to uh, 
participate. And anything before we get started, um, I want to talk about the finances first, but I got some great law stuff too. How's everybody doing? Anybody want to say anything? If not, Eric, we're going to go with you. <clears throat> I see a chat. So, so you remember That's when, go ahead. I was just going to ask is Elias, is that a family name? Are you a Walt Disney fan? Is there a story? Real quick, since I'm the boss of everything, <laughs> I, def I said, Gina, I insist that you pick the name. <laughs> she actually, there's nothing crazy. Selma Hayek did this crazy independent film where her, she had a son named Elias and she all, Gina always remembered the scene where he's running, she's running through a maze chasing her son, yelling, Elias, Elias. And she goes, that name has always stuck with me. And then I said, I'm good as long as I can call that boy Eli when he's down in Louisiana. And so there we go. And, <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so let me tell you about Eric. And then uh, Eric, I'm gonna give you, you know, remember when I talked about follow-up? <laughs> and how most sales have happened in the seventh to the 12th follow-up. And how, if you think about it in your own practices, the court reporters that you've hired, the vendors, whatever, many times those are the people that just keep coming at you, coming at you, right? And most salesmen quit after the first, second, or third time, and yet 75% of all sales happen after that. And I say that, because God bless you, Eric. He has contacted me 15, 20 times, sent gifts, congratulate, but really kind of did what I talk about, keeping your name out there, keeping your name out there. And sure enough, Eric, you are exhibit A. Here you are now. I've asked you to, to, to talk about this. I think we're going to uh, work together and you have an audience. So Eric, awesome. Eric Gomez, please tell us a little bit about you and then let's, let's get rolling. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. Um, we're on a team retreat right now, so I, I apologize. We're in Palm Springs. Uh, our, our schedule worked out perfectly. Uh, I found a quiet, quiet spot. You have to work, you work through the, the variables. I'm trying to eliminate them. So you may see some people walking behind, but hopefully we won't have any, uh, anybody heckling me or, or bother me during this, this time. But I appreciate you giving me this, this floor, this platform. Um, I love what you and Gina do. Um, at this point in our practice, we're looking to just partner with people that are like-minded and share similar values. And you guys are very involved in the community and helping people that are less fortunate. I know you guys have been blessed by a lot of hard work. And so uh, I'm glad to share, share my time, share my, my expertise uh, and be a resource to who, who we can. Um, our firm, so it's EG Wealth Management. We're really a private client group within a Fortune, within a Fortune 100 company. So it's just not me in a closet, you know, coming up with financial recommendations or, 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 uh, or doing things like that. Um, and I've been with that firm, Northwestern Mutual, for uh, all of my career, 17 years. And we created this little, carved out this little area of the world about uh, two years ago. And so per, primarily now, um, we serve uh, two markets. One is what we refer to as the new majority executive. These are generally diverse um, corporate executives or uh, business leaders 
and that does bleed into a little bit of, of self-employed folks. I do work with quite a few attorneys. Um, for those attorneys on here, I want to hold that against you. I love you guys, and I love the work that you do and your education and, and uh, the relentlessness to get that done because that is not an easy process. The second group of folks that we serve and partner with is what we refer to as the retirement red zone. So people preparing for retirement or early in that, generally about five years away. So um, that's who we are. That's who we serve. We're very strategic oriented. So this isn't, as Mike referenced, this isn't about, you know, what product do we have on the shelf that we need to get off? How do I win a set of steak knives or go to Hawaii? This is really client focused, outcome oriented. We talk very little about um, portfolio construction and, um, you know, rate of return and the stuff that the world has become accustomed that folks like me will, will talk about. So I generally tell people we're the layer right above maybe the person that is your money manager that that maybe at a firm that rhymes with Schmeryl Schminch or, you know, there's other ones that, you know, um, we're doing more of the strategic um, planning and mapping that, that course. So, so Eric, um, let me uh, start by saying, okay, we're all starting here. You know, I'm not a real believer in year to year things, but most, but most of us look at things at starting 2022 so first, generally, what are some of the things that we all should be looking at that are going to be important for us to pay attention to? Absolutely. Great question. So on our team retreat, we we're doing some of this. And I was telling my team, I love this first part of the year, end of the last year, as a time for reflection, especially for you that are self-employed like myself. What happened? What went well? What's the tale of the tape? Right? Did you win? Did you meet the goals that you have? Why or why not? So I call that taking inventory. I think that's really, really important. And I think that also then translate to your finances. One thing I always recommend, and you guys could DM us, you could follow us uh, on uh, Instagram, at, uh, Mike's tagged us, uh, you'll probably put that information. So you can email us if you like, I can send you this tool. It's very basic. It's not really magical. Um, but I like to tell everybody, drop in there your current expenses, right? You have fixed expenses, you have discretionary expenses. Your mortgage, you're always going to have to pay. Your car payment, you're going to pay. Gas is a variable. Groceries are a variable. Baby formula or whatever. Diapers is a variable, right? Um, and so you may have new expenses and you may have old expenses. So I like to do an inventory there to say, what, what are we currently spending? And let's be thoughtful about it. Should we be spending it? Do you have a gym membership that you haven't gone to? Or do you have a subscription that you haven't tapped into for some time? Let's get rid of the things that are no longer adding value. And then the second thing is let's now add in things that will add value. You know, Mike mentioned, maybe he has a Hulu subscription. He says, with the baby, we're not going to be watching Hulu. Let's get rid of Hulu, save 10 bucks. And maybe he wants to add in $80 to a yoga student, right? So it's, it's a subtraction and then it's an addition. And then what we talk about is uh, sandboxes. So this will give you an assembly. So I'll just use generic numbers. Let's say you go through your expenses and they're, I'll use round numbers, $10,000 a month. That's mathematically what you see. The first thing your brain's going to tell you is, man, I just I feel like I'm spending more than that or I'm bringing in 10, but I just feel like there's nothing left. That's the first sandbox, the 10,000, what on paper you need to, to spend. Um, and, I, and I say that when you have kids, they're inevitably going to get some sand out of the sandbox, but they're just going to get it on the peripheral, right? They're not going to go 100 yards away and you know, throw it over the fence more than likely. So I say, let's build a second sandbox. And I tell people, we can throw sand out of our first 10,000 hour sandbox, but we can't throw it out of the second sandbox. So if you're spending 10, mathematically you're spending 10, you're going to have gifts and you're going to have travel and gasoline is going to go up, groceries are going to go up, um, whatever else it may be, discretionary, Costco, Amazon, Uber Eats, the things you don't track as well. 
So then figure out what's a little bit more spending so you have flexibility and then commit to that. So in my example, if it's 10, maybe we build it out to 12. So you have enough flexibility, but you have to live within that second sandbox. And then I suggest you do that twice a year. I think that's an easy one. All right. Um, I didn't know if you're going to say something. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I was saying we need to make room for knife purchases, but knife purchases. That's Mike's thing. <laughs> Keep going. I love it. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, Mike brings up that uh, I think a lot of times, so our firm's also about experience. I think why people don't want to come talk to us is they think I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to hammer them over the head and say, Mike, I see you spending money on all these knives. You know, you only have two hands. Why do you need 200 knives? Right. But I like to listen to what makes people tick. There's something about those knives that, that jacks Mike up. So I'm like, all right, what do we want to spend on knives? What is our allotment? Let's add that into the budget. Let's take the stuff out that isn't bringing you joy, that isn't bringing you the satisfaction you want in life. So there, there's that. I would say the second, um, I know for you that are self-employed, you may not have a, like a 401k where you're automatically enrolled, but I would say take a look at your uh, accounts, how much you're contributing to them. I do suggest, even if you're self-employed and you have ebbs and flows in your income, um, set a standard, set an expectation for yourself, hold yourself accountable, right? If saving a thousand bucks seems like a stretch, put in 500, and then look at the end of the quarter and say, hey, I was a little bit more profitable. That case closed that I wasn't expecting. I have X amount left. How much am I going to put in this bucket? How much am I going to put in that bu bucket, et cetera? Um, because that is that consistency is what wins the race. If you think about the tortoise and the hare, right? The tortoise wins because it just keeps moving on. It wasn't the fastest, but it was the most consistent. Um, if you have any sort of credit card debt, look at that again. Has your interest rates gone up? Let me can, interrupt. Can you move that somewhere? Yes, sir. And ask you that because is anybody else here who has debt, <laughs> right? Um, from a, a macro level, let's go over just kind of good debt, bad debt. Is there any such thing as good debt? And as uh, I will tell you that I have found, you know, I, I made a switch to using Amex only, right? Paid it off every month. Um, Significant change, right? I made, you know, paying off my mortgage up to the point of whatever my tax deduction is. Big difference, but other people have different different ideas about good debt and bad debt. Can you talk a yeah. little about that? Absolutely, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. Number one, speaking of, of credit cards, um, they need to be used strategically. I sit in, so, in front of so many people and they say, all my bills go on there because I need the points. I need the miles. And let me tell you something. If that's the story you're telling yourself with all due respect, you're lying to yourself. The only one that's winning in that equation is the person who's sending you that bill every single month, right? And the reason I say that is because you don't have an immediate uh, feeling that the money is, is, is no longer there. And so when it's on a credit card, you don't see your bank account going to zero. Your credit card will let you run it up to the limit. Sometimes it'll let you go over the limit. Your, your bank, if you have $10,000 back to my example and you get to zero, the bank's not gonna let you spend sub-zero, right? And so that forces people oftentimes to be a little bit tighter and be a little bit more efficient. Um, when um, it comes to debt, um, I would say that debt is like uh, beauty. It's in the eyes of the beholder, right? So I don't really think there's good debt and bad debt. There's better debt and worse debt, right? And if you're not managing any of it, any debt I think can be bad and it can get the, the best of you. I think if you're leveraging, let's say a credit card or a line of credit, um, that's helping your business grow. 
And if that's helping you get where you want to be, and that's going to help you be better for your clients or better financially off, that's a good use or leverage of that debt. And for self-employed, if you have like lines of credit, that's also a deductible interest. So you get a little bit of a reprieve on what the true cost is. Um, credit cards can't go ahead. So let me dub that tail. And I know that a lot of people know this information, but I want to dovetail credit into the thing that people don't pay attention to that could be the most significant financial issue in your life, which is your FICO score, which is your credit score. Okay. Mm -hmm. Credit score makes such a significant difference on the quality of the debt, the rates, uh, how much down payment you have to give, except when you buy a house, when you have a line of credit, when you, I mean, they all pull your credit report. So can you talk a little bit about that? And, you know, there's a million different things. Well, you got to have a credit card and pay it off every month and you got to do this and you got to have this debt and get rid of it. And then how long can you talk about that? Yeah, so when it comes to when it comes to debt, you obviously don't want to be too over leveraged because then you're at the at the mercy of somebody else, and and um, that doesn't obviously create financial freedom. I would say that um, you don't want to have high utilization, oftentimes of those, and you don't want to have high open balances. So let's say you have a bunch of credit card, cards paid off, and you have five thousand dollars outstanding. That sometimes um, can can work against you because the the the, the crediting agencies will say, hey. Will you have that ability to over leverage yourself? So having a little bit of balance. Um, for me, I, I think there is, to, to Mike's point, there is a, a, a good and better way. If you don't need the cards um, and you don't uh, think you're going to need them, I like to consolidate. I don't like to have it outstanding myself. Um, it may um, perhaps make my credit score a little bit better if I did and I put a little bit on it and paid it off. Um, um, I think it's, it's minute oftentimes. So I would say utilize it how you you need to but manage it and obviously don't get it too high to the limit because they also don't like you know cards being up to the limit because it also tells them that you rack up debt and you can't manage it or pay it down and let me just say the last point on this and we'll open up for questions and then there's a couple of different other areas i actually downloaded the credit uh i think it's credit karma app and it's actually pretty damn responsive and i learned a lot by when I would do something, they would email me and say, your credit score has gone up or down. And then they would say, due to the following thing. And it's free. There's a lot, I'm probably, there's probably 10 of those apps, but I use Credit Karma. And I found it to be very, very interesting because, you know, sometimes you, you like, you would do something and you wouldn't ask, well, are you gonna pull my credit? Not a big deal. But I would see on Credit Karma, they would reduce my credit score. And I'm like, wait a minute. Tell me more before you pull my credit. What's going to happen here? And just those little things, again, it's not catastrophic. It doesn't change you from a 200 to an 800. <laughs> but, but it does help. So that's something I did. So before we go to now kind of tax planning and defined benefit, does anybody have anything generally they want to ask? things that they've seen that they need uh, answered. All right, Eric. Yes, sir. Taxes. Yep. Some of us have law firms, per, uh, professional corporations. Uh, some of us have sole practices. 
is there a better or a worse way for us to pay ourselves tax-wise so that at the end of the year, we're not screwed? Absolutely. This is, a, this is a fantastic question. Really quick before I get to that, I just want to point something out. I want to give give Mike some kudos. Is, um, I wrote down the credit karma thing. I've seen it. I've seen the ads. I've seen the commercials. I've probably got Instagram ads. But someone that's utilizing it, I love how well-rounded you are. You know, you bought that, you, you shared that book, The Psychology of Money, and I bought it that day. And it's been a phenomenal book. I even put it in our newsletter. Um, so I just love how you, you, you share those things. So I'm going to check it out and share that with, with my clients. But to, to taxes, if you guys think about Thanksgiving, right? The way you eat less during Thanksgiving or any other uh, times is you get smaller plates. So we have a system that we have built that will make um, putting your income, your revenue, I should say, onto smaller plates so that you could eat what you should, but also have money in other areas for other purposes. Um, I can't see your hands because I'm just looking at Mike's face on my phone right now, but I bet if I saw a show of hands, um, if I ask by a show of hands, who wanted to be profitable day one, I bet I would get everybody to raise their hand. And we have a system based on the small plates idea on how to get you profitable day one. And the way you do it is basically like a, like a filtration system, I'll call it. You put the revenue at the top. We have the spreadsheet built based on percentages of how much you should take in profit right away, how much you should put in for operating expenses. So that's your staff, your e &O, associations, rent phones, et cetera, whatever else your expenses are, and then how you pay yourself. When you're a sole practitioner, you have a lot of control. Um, you should obviously consult your, your tax professional, but uh, the way you do it is you pay yourself the amount you need to pay yourself to stay off the IRS's radar from a W-2 standpoint, and the rest of it you take in a distribution, what they call owner's distributions, owner's draws, K-1 distributions, the, the technical term for it that, that are S-corps. Um, and that is a way to mitigate tax because you don't pay that payroll tax. And that is an 18 and a half percent savings. Just a quick story on this is that I have a client that is self-employed in the medical space um, and she, uh, we charged her a fee and they were a little on the fence about, oh, you know, retaining us for that, that strategic help. And I said, here's an idea. You're paying yourself this. Here's what you should be paying yourself. I took the Delta and did 18 and a half percent. And like magic, it was almost exactly the fee. I said, that one piece of advice is going to save you taxes for the rest of your life and it's going to offset the fee that we're charging in, in year one. Based on that plate system, you also have a percentage of taxes. We all know that we have to pay them. I know what it's like to run a lean business. I know what it's like to go into tough times. We, we had COVID. We're going to have something else in the future. And so um, we need those resources. But if you put the money out of sight, out of mind, and you mentally say, this is not my money, this is Uncle Sam's money, or this isn't my money, this is the house's money, meaning profit money, It'll help you stay focused on how much you need to make, how much you should pay yourself, and then what money you have to pay your expenses. And it's been a system that has revolutionized my world and, is, and for our clients as well. Go ahead, Mike. So I'll tell everybody what I do. So I actually do what you said. So, you know, I've had a practice now for 21 years. So I have a 20 plus year history of paying a shitload of taxes, right? So... If suddenly I have no taxes, IRS goes dink. So we have uh, needs every month, you know, Gene and I. And so we have, by the way, I've had a business manager for the last 12 years, which is a godsend. Um, so the business manager pays all of our personal bills. 
Well, they need X amount of money every month. So I've tried to get as close as I can to making that my salary that has withholding taken from it. So after withholding, Gina and I have a paycheck that is deposited into a personal account and we try to pay all of our personal expenses. I asked him, I said, well, every month you ask for more money, right? We spend more than, than my paycheck. So I have draws, how about I up my salary so we don't have to keep taking a draw every month from the firm. And he said exactly that, is that you gotta have enough to show that you're, you're paying your taxes and you're not cheating, but you don't wanna have too much because you gotta pay extra payroll tax on all that extra stuff. So yep. it's a pretty simple thing. If you talk to you know, your CPA, they're probably gonna tell you, take a salary for after withholding for whatever you think maybe that first sandbox is and then draws after that if you need higher sandbox. Yeah. By the way, as an aside, what it allowed us to do was I know what I'm worth salary-wise to me and my firm. So let's say I pay myself um, $500,000 salary, okay? Well, remember, and I know this is a little technical, one of the, the metrics that I do is I look at how many cases are in the firm and what our median settlement is. And that total needs to be higher than all the firm expenses minus my salary, right? Because I can deal with fluctuating my salary. And so by giving yourself a healthy salary, it also helps you um, plan for each year. And yeah. To, to expand upon that, for most of you that will have ebbs and flows, especially in a business like Mike's and maybe some of your others, where you have big money coming in and it may get a little quiet and then big money coming in, is this system allows you to sort of escrow money so you can levelize those income, you can levelize, because most of our expenses, personal and business, are going to be relatively flat. And so this system has helped people take these ebbs and flows out and has levelized them, because once you put it through this filter, and back to Mike's point, if he needs 40 grand, but he had, let's say a million dollars come in, he's going to have a surplus in his, as his account to pay his operating expenses he's gonna have a surplus in his, in his owner's compensation. So the months that go dip down, right. He can pull from that account that's already sitting there waiting for him. And it will help also levelize, um, even emotionally, you know, do I have enough to pay myself and so forth? I've sat in front of so many business owners that say, all oh, my bills are getting paid, but I'm not paying myself. Right. That, that, um, you're now captive of your business. And, and, and uh, sometimes I tell business owners that if they're just barely even paying themselves enough to pay their bills, you don't have a business, you own your job, right? So we all got into this to be self-employed, to have autonomy, to have flexibility and control and upside potential. So I think this system really helps create that for folks, whether you're 21 years in or you're in law school or your first year out, um, I think these, they apply. Last two points on this. The other thing of paying yourself a salary and knowing what the value you're placing on your services to your firm is if you sell it in the future, if three years from now they start having venture capital people come in, one of the big things they're going to want to know is your operating profit. Right? And your operating profit has to assume that 
if you're not there, they have to hire somebody like you that's going to cost that same amount of money. So it's important to start to think about that value. Last thing on taxes. You know, in California, there's what, 13% on the top. Some of your money, if you're making good money, is 55% tax. Well, I can't take 55% of all the money I make. And, and we've done this with my CPL. And we have determined, because we all run stuff through the firm and there's expenses and whatever, that to try to take 25% of all the extra, and I put it aside for that year-end tax planning. Um, and that's been very accurate for the last several years. Very. Yeah. So in other words, you make a hundred grand, and like you're saying, you don't need all that hundred. Take twenty-five thousand of that and put it into a, a separate account or a Schwab account or whatever. Yep. Last, last topic, and um, before we talk just a bit about crypto. Um, <laughs> Everybody's ears. Whoop. Defined benefits, 401ks, SEP IRAs, for the sole, pra sole practitioner, what are some of our options? Yeah, so back to taxes, um, you're always going to pay them, right? We say that tax, that tax uh, evasion is a crime, tax avoidance is legal, right? And so that's the, that's the role we play and in our planning. We use the U.S. tax code as our guiding light. Um, for us, and, and we can all see it, is that taxes will more than likely go up over time. And so while you're working and you're a business owner, as Mike just mentioned, you run a lot for your business, you may make this much money, but you may pay tax on this amount. And so I find for sole practitioners, there's a very fine line with how much money you put away pre-tax, because back to this, if you make this and then you basically paying tax on this and you put money into a, a retirement plan, it lowers it even further, right? So what happens is you still had all of this access that in theory you didn't pay tax on. And so I would say that that's one thing we talk to our clients a lot about that are self-employed and have some tax control on their deductions is you should put some away um, because it helps you. You can do it systematically. You do get a deduction, especially if your income is really high. You know, you could only put, you know, if, you're, if your income I'd probably say is over, a half a million dollars on on up, you're going to be able to max out a qualified plan and not even notice it on your tax return because of how the, much would that be? Like the, the the SEP the SEP you could put in fifty grand, and then if you're over fifty, there's a catch up, which will probably take you to fifty seven or sixty. I don't know what the catch up this year is, but you know if you like back to I said if you so let's say you made six hundred thousand dollars and you use those numbers, you put away ten percent. We don't need a calculator to do the math. The 10% is not going to cut the mustard to get you your lifestyle down the road. Um, so we also help you understand putting money away today, getting a tax deduction perhaps, and then also how do you put money away very strategically and tax efficiently after tax to be able to balance out your taxable income in the future. Because the money you put away today without tax, guess what? Down the road, Uncle Sam's going to be standing there with his handout at a time when you have much less control over your deductibility. And people oftentimes lose sight of that. I hear so many people, well, aren't they going to live on less in retirement? Yes, in theory, but you forgot about two things. One is inflation. So whatever you need today is probably going to grow with inflation. And when you retire, it's probably going to be almost dollar for dollar, roughly the same. The second is, is you have less control on your deductions. So therefore your taxable income that they see 
is going to be substantial down the road. So if you put a dollar away today, they may take $2 in taxes in the future. And people sort of misunderstand the tax, what we call the tax drag on that. But once again, back to how I opened, all these other firms want to talk about rate of return and I can get you 10, 12, 15%. Those returns are awesome if you can get them. But what if you just got a normal return and you save 25% tax on the back end, right? And you did that for 20 years of your life. That's a lot of money. So it's about balancing these things. If you have a firm with employees and you have a number of staff, then yes, you're going to do something outside of the SEP or simple because those are geared for self-employed, very few staff folks because there's, we won't get into it now, but there's, there's mandatory contributions for your staff and those types of plans. The SEP is meant for people that have really partners and really not a lot of staff because of the um, mandatory contribution for your staff. And then if you have staff, you're going to use something like run-of-the-mill 401k, which is really a employer-sponsored plan for everybody, the owners, partners, as well as rank and file. So by the way, that's SEP. SEP. IRA. Or Elias, P is in Paul, hyphen IRA. Yep. Um, last point on taxes, and then we'll do a little crypto, and then we're going to talk about some law, okay? You know, when you have a client comes in and they said, I lost a million dollars last year. And I'm like, okay, show me your tax return so we can prove it. And they made $2,500 on their tax return. What do all of us say? I'm not going to be able to make a loss of income claim because nobody's going to fucking believe it. Right? <laughs> now, right. imagine you're the client and you want money from a bank and they go, let me see your tax returns. And they know you're making money and they have $2,500 in income. It is a significant issue for your lines of credit, for buying a home. For So I taxes are, we want to reduce them and avoid them whenever we can. But understand that if you're always upset about paying taxes, you're going to be fucking upset all your life. Yep. Don't cut your nose off to spite your face. And that sometimes having a healthy taxable income and biting the bullet is what, what the bank loves, which is how you get big lines of credit, how you have flexibility, et cetera. So there is a silver lining. Uh, yep. Last thing. Really quickly, let me just expand upon that. So when you talked about income and not paying this, this payroll tax, et cetera, there's, there's a there's a tax approach to it. And then there is a um, lifestyle or goals approach. So if you, let's say you wanted to buy your own building or you wanted to upgrade your house or buy a car, those are questions we always ask our clients is, you know, what is in the future? Because we want to make sure you make how much income you're taking and you may want to take a little bit more, take a little bit less. I always say that I want to partner with people's business manager or accountant because the accountant is doing a great job or your business manager is doing a great job to get things paid and done. But we got to come together on, year by year mitigation and then lifelong mitigation right and there's a there's a fine line and i just met with somebody that um we're helping them kind of restructure their corporation because they're making money doing well but their stuff's a mess their cash flow's a mess they can't get lines of credit they can't do things with their business and they don't know how to get out of it and so that's a very good point um, is um, that you have to be aware of all those things and once again you guys are great business owners attorneys professionals in your own regard be resourceful if i needed I had a legal issue, right? I would call a professional that's studied that. I'm not going to go try to figure it out on my own and so vice versa be leveraged so, out. So last, last is thing on last thing on on this is um, 
complete confidence. If anybody wants to just reach out to me, I'm happy to tell you what I do, what I've learned the hard way. I've had the benefit of 20 plus years of a CPA plus a business manager, plus, plus, plus. Happy to know, totally confidential. I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing and how I can help you. The two books that I think are really important, we've mentioned them both here. Um, Eric just said the psychology of money. That's one. And by the way, everybody's gonna get an email with all of Eric's information plus the books and everything to note. The psychology of money is critical because it really changes how you look at money. And for me, when I read it, it changed completely my big picture outlook on money in the best possible way. Second, it's an old book called The Richest Man in Babylon. It's written in the 30s. And it's basically a parable that teaches about 10 basic wealth building techniques that are gifts that you follow, you will be rich. Period. Period. Yep. Period. No matter how much money you make, you will be rich. Right? Yep. The last book really quickly that I love, it was one of the first books I read 17 years ago when I came into this business is the millionaire next door there's a new edition his daughter wrote it called the next millionaire next door phenomenal book it tells you what the people in this country that have money look like and what they don't and one thing i posted sometime back is it's much easier to look rich than it is to be rich and the ones that are really rich or have money or have real net worth you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, even be able to be able to tell so those are great great books I read that back when it came out in the 90s and I yeah. said, hell no, I'm not doing that because you got to drive a 30-year-old pickup truck and <laughs> look like shit. It's like, no. Boy, that was smart, though. That was good advice. Um, all right, let's switch. Spend five minutes um, on crypto. I will tell you that in a, two weeks, the next one, we're going to do it on heavy-duty crypto, NFTs, and the metaverse. And we've got experts in all three areas that have agreed to come because if you're like me, you have no freaking clue what that stuff is. And they're going to talk it from a basic level. And I've, I'm going to learn, but base just quick, Eric, crypto, tell us a little bit about it. So crypto, so I'm going to use, I love analogies. I use a lot of them. I'm going to use, use, a knife analogy. So, so Mike has a tremendous collection of knives. Mike has, he's bought them for something. So let's forget that for a second, but he's placed the value. If I go to him and I say, I'm going to give you $20 for this knife. And he says, I'm, I want it for $50. He perceives it's worth 50. I perceive it's worth 20. And crypto is very similar. It's basically buying and selling based on what one person believes it's worth or what they don't believe it's worth. Um, the government, the regulatory bodies are having a struggle. Obviously, they're going to have to figure it out. And this isn't going to go away, right? And these are going to be waves of the future. Um, the bottom line is, is how they're different than buying Apple. Is Apple has a tangible product. They have earnings, right? And you base the stock price based on a number of parameters. Crypto doesn't have that. It is basically a supply and demand. There was an article I read a couple of days ago that crypto just fell through the floor and the article said that there is, you know, not a recovery in sight. 
Um, and it just, it just, it happened, right? Because somebody dumped it. Maybe it's, you know, what they think is going to happen with Omicron or whatever it may be. It's extremely, extremely speculative. With that said, I'm not against it at all. I would say that where I think it gets a little sideways is a lot of people perceive it as a get rich quick scheme because we hear the, the anecdotal stories of this person. I heard one on the golf course that this guy put in, what was it? $15,000 and turned into 2 billion. There are stories like that. And, and it is possible. It's, it's lightning in a bottle for every one person. There's thousands that haven't made money. So what I'd say is if you want to understand what this looks like or what it means, put something in it that you're okay to dabble and to learn with um, and that you're not gonna lose any sleep over if you lose it. So if that's $1,000 or $100,000, do it and, and, and get into it is, is sort of my bottom line. From an advisory standpoint, um, these aren't things that can be layered into a, a traditional portfolio. They're unregulated markets. And um, if you're a registered advisor that's governed by governmental entities, the SEC, et cetera, um, these can't be things that are advised upon, but obviously our clients are asking about it. So we give them our two cents. We try to help them be safe um, and how they approach it. Um, but that's, that's by two cents. And I know it's not going to go anywhere. And so we will get a handle on it and it will become more mainstream and regulated over time. And so I got to stop here. Fred, I know you're on here and he's, he is going to be a part of a future talk where we're going to talk about this in depth and you're going to talk about if you want to get into crypto, if you want to do kind of what Eric's saying, some of the ways that you can do that. We're also going to talk about NFTs. We're going to talk about um, the metaverse and selling virtual real estate, which is crazy. Again, yeah. not for us to stop practicing law and become speculators but just to have some basic understanding. So Eric, got to stop here. Really very, very much appreciated. Thank you for taking the time out. And like I said, everybody's going to get an email with your information. And I'm sure that you'll be happy to answer any questions if anybody has. Yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions, give my opinions or thoughts, anything that you're struggling with. We're, we're uh, an open door. Um, thanks for, thanks for having us. Thanks for some of you that are, that have followed us. That's a great place to just hear some of the, the concepts and, and, um, that we're passionate about what we're learning to make people better in all aspects of life, just obviously not, not money. And so I appreciate uh, your time today. Hopefully this was helpful. Last quote that I love is small hinges swing big doors. You know, you may be hearing some of this stuff and say, well, none of this was really revolutionary. Nothing really blew my mind. There are some nuggets. There's some tidbits, whether it's the filtration system on how to run your books, whether it's how to put money away pre-tax or post-tax, those small incremental decisions, choices, tweaks, um, long-term can have a profound effect. And so hopefully this has been helpful. I wish you all a wonderful 2022. Hopefully it's been a great way to start the year and just giving you a couple of uh, takeaways today. Thank you so much. No problem, guys. Have a great day. And to that point, you know, everything that I've ever said, well, that's good advice. I had probably heard 10 or 15 or 30 or a hundred times before and just wasn't in a place to know that, well, that's good advice. And so just like everything, repetition, consistency, just like getting clients, making sure your name is out there over and over because a lot of times it doesn't stick. It's not the right time. It's not the right time for it to stick but you hear it over and over and maybe some point it's the right time. 
Case in point, how many seminars have you been to where you go, well, I got one good nugget. The rest of the stuff you probably already heard before. Again, that doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just the way of life. So um, let's talk a little law, a couple of uh, things that have happened to our practice. Uh, a little while ago, I had talked about <clears throat> trying to figure out a strategy to up our firm's Google reviews. And every one of us says, oh yeah, Google reviews, that's a good idea. We gotta get that, I gotta do that, I gotta do that. The point is, is that I, like some of you, never pulled the trigger. Like, I don't understand it. So I finally started to look into it. There is a way that you can very easily create a link that is textable, that is emailable, that can create a QR code, and you can send it to anyone and they click on it and leave a review if you want that. So we started doing that. And some of you have gotten text from me where I just started saying, hey, to people I know, hey, we're trying to build our Google reviews. Would you leave me a Google review? Right? We had 25 two weeks ago. We've got 45 two weeks later. But um, happy to share all this as well. But we are now going to send, um, we're going to have a competition in the firm for who can recommend the people with, who will get the most reviews and have a contest, reaching out to past clients, reaching out to vendors, reaching out to defense lawyers, reaching out to mediators. All of these things are important because the variety plus the location of where the review is left is important. So I contacted every lawyer that I know around the country and said, can you leave me a review? And a review in Green Bay is important. Google thinks that's a bigger deal than if I get 30 from Sherman Oaks. I get it. So I just want to reiterate that if you are figuring this out, email me. I'll send you everything I've got, everything we've done. I'll show you. I'll connect you with the person in our office who, who put it together. Next, and I'm really excited about this next thing. So as part of my life coaching, I have told myself, plus I've left it on Instagram every morning at 5 a.m. for several weeks, months, is that whatever you want to make a priority or whatever you want to do in your life, if you make it a priority, then you devote time to it and you devote it consistently, you will see catastrophically positive events. And the big issue is that step of deciding what is my priorities that if I do those things, get me where I wanna be. And I did three things that I wrote down that I thought were significant. One, I wanna work out five times a week. Every day, I want to listen to or read a book for 20 minutes. And I do that audible or I read. And once a day for at least 20 minutes, I want to do some sort of MCLE legal education. And I started doing this. I have read 
countless books. And I want to share with you something I heard in my MCLE this morning, which I thought was a phenomenal idea. Okay. So I'm listening to Trial Lawyers University. I paid the money to subscribe. They offered it to me for free because I could teach there. I'm like, I'm paying you the money. I'm working out and I'm listening to Keith Mitnick's speech in Vegas. And he talked about our client's depositions. And he said, the biggest thing when you have a client who's older or has been hurt seriously in the past is that they have a lot of pre-existing problems. And what the defense is trying to do is they're trying to catch your client by lying about, oh, you didn't mention you had that chiropractor, et cetera, 20 years ago. And I got to tell you, I don't remember if I went to a doctor a month ago. And here's what he said he, would, he does. And I'm going to start doing this. Sam, we're doing this. He says, before your client's depot, summarize, make sure you have all of the current and past medical records. We do that and we summarize them. He says, go through and get snippets from all of the past records where they have complaints or they have issues. They went to a doctor that's significant. They said something about hurting or go over it with your client. Then have your client handwrite the same thing as notes to themselves. And when you start the plaintiff's depot, you say, counsel, before we start, I wanna mark as exhibit A and B, the complete medical timeline and my client's notes on what he or she has been able to remember or glean. And I'm gonna mark them as an exhibit and my client's gonna have them available to look at. Boom! Next, they start asking questions. Well, let me look at my notes. Oh, I don't want you to look at your notes. Counsel, are you saying that you don't want my client to look at notes that he or she made to accurately respond to your questions? That's right, I don't want you to do that. Then at the, if, they, if your client leaves anything out, after they finish, you then ask questions. Mr. Plaintiff, earlier you asked some questions and they didn't allow you to look at your notes. I want you to look at your notes and I want to point you to this area. Did you, because you were forced to do it by memory, forget that? They go, oh yeah, of course. I didn't mean to exclude. Yes, absolutely. Totally cut. Can you imagine if they try to cross the plaintiff on, well, that trial, or you didn't say whatever. I'm like, did you make notes so that you wouldn't have to go and be go through this and you'd be accurate? And counsel said, you can't look at your notes that would make this an accurate answer. I mean, it's genius. Next, how many times do you have your client in a depot and they go, what kind of issues have you had? They go, well, I, uh, I can't play golf as much. My golf swings and, you know, I haven't been on that European vacation again. That these are things that people, when they're not really focused on day-to-day -day stuff, talk about. And then you got jurors that are like, sorry, Bubba, I'm getting excited. You got jurors that are like, well, I wish I could take a European vacation and play golf all the time. When in reality, 
what the problem is your clients day to day. So he recommended giving your client, literally have a notebook that you give to them because it, it gives like substantive gravitas to this is where you need to dig deep. And I want you to write in the notebook all of the things and take it a couple of days or whatever that you feel like you are being affected. And he said, when you do that, you get stuff like, well, I can't get comfortable. Um, I have to now make decisions about whether I'm going to do stuff or not do stuff. I throw the baseball with my son or daughter and they want me to, they love it when I throw hard, but I don't, I, I, I said, I don't want to do that because it hurts too much. You know, I got to brush my teeth with an electric toothbrush because it's a lot easier on my neck. I just get out of bed differently. I used to pop out. Now I got to kind of roll on my side. I didn't know what a heating pad was before this accident. I have them, you know, I've never laid on the floor because of back problems. Just that. So have that. Have your client, once you go over it, then write those things in their handwriting. And that's exhibit C at the depot. And it eliminates all of that. Well, tell me how this has affected you. If they don't go through, you say that plus everything that you made notes about. Is that right? Yes. So you really take away a ton of that sting. Any thoughts on that? I just, I, again, makes perfect sense. I'm just like, well, shit, I'm a dumbass. I've only been practicing 30 years and that's a damn good idea. Good idea, huh? Yeah, Kevin. Mike, would you suggest doing that with uh, accident-related medical treatment? Everything. Yeah, everything. Again, I will tell you that I have found that disclosing past issues, past problems, past it's literally a non-issue. But if you don't disclose it and they discover it, it is cataclysmic, cataclysmic. So again, but it also shows everything about the type of leopard that you are. We're here for the truth. We're here for accuracy. We're here to be upfront. We're here to be complete. But understand that I know and my client knows what I'm going to be asking about at trial and what I'm not. Those are the types of lawyers that people don't want to deal with. Malisak. I, you answered my question. Great. Good ideas, huh, guys? All right. Um, last thing. You know, uh, while... You know, last couple of months have been going on. I've been talking to a lot of young lawyers, a lot of lawyers, just like I have for my whole career, about how to improve their practice, how to make more money, how to, to be financially more successful, how to have happier clients. And I've kind of heard the same thing over and over that I've been giving as advice. And I always say, I mean, the way to make money and the way to have happy clients is speed. So everything that you need to do in a case, the faster you can do it times the number of cases you have will exponentially increase the amount of money that you make. Not only because you do more cases, but you have more cash flow. You have money in your cases for less time. And you get to decide about these cases earlier and you don't waste as much time letting them sit and then having to put out fires. And the number one time waster overwhelmingly 
that I see over and over is leaving your case in pre-lit after you've had the clues or should have recognized the clues that the pre-lit adjuster is not going to treat you fairly. That is overwhelmingly the number one thing of wasting time because as soon as you realize that they're not going to offer you 75, 80% of the true value of the case, as soon as you get that low ball offer, as soon as you see, well, they're not telling me what the coverage is. They're not, they're asking for tons of extensions. They're saying they're fighting on comparative. As soon as you realize that that person is not going to give you a fair shake, understand that they will never give you a fair shake. They will never wake up and go, you know what? I'm an idiot. You're right. Here's a ton more money. And it's the sooner you can recognize that and get it out of that adjuster's hands, you will be shocked at how much faster your case is resolved. Now, we all have a billion reasons why. Ah, it's not the adjuster. Oh, my client's still treating. Ah, your client can still treat and you can figure out if the adjuster is going to be fair with you. Whether your client's still treating or not, if you have an unfair adjuster, you need to file the lawsuit. And I got to tell you that on some of these smaller policies, filing is what makes the, it gets it to a litigation adjuster or an in-house counsel. And if you've done all of the work that they need to do, the bills, the records, the photos of the plaintiff, the TCR, the property damage photos, they'll pay you the money. And every day that you can do it faster is money in your pocket. But more importantly, you have happier clients and happier clients give you more happy clients. And you're also creating what kind of leopard you are to the carrier. So I'm mean, just that. So if you go through your cases and you say, ask one question, do I know if this pre-lit adjuster is going to treat me fairly or not? On every one that you can say they're not, file. Come back to me in a month and I bet you settle 30% more of your cases. We got one minute. Eli, what you got? He's like, dad, I got a dirty doctor. That's what I got. Any last minute questions, guys? Really appreciate everybody being here. I, the next one um, is gonna be hardcore, NFT, crypto, metaverse. This shit is so interesting. I'm like, how the hell do people come up with this? But it is going to be a great basic primer on all of these things. And we all have heard about it. We all want to know about it. So um, look for that. Thank you, guys. You'll get an email with all this information that we talked about today. Love you. See you guys later. Bye, Mike. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Congrats yeah. again. Bye. Bye, Eli. Thanks, Mike. Bye, Eli.